78644 is brought to you by Texas Hatters, the Little Alamo Airbnb, El Rey Bar and Nightclub, Wendy R. Books and Gifts, Birdie House, Maverick Horseback Riding, in-kind sponsors are Bevy's Fine Wine and Spirits, Good Things Grocery, Willigan's Island, Courthouse Nights, Printing Solutions, and the Gaslight Baker Theater. The celebration of St. Patrick's Day always brings to mind Ireland and the customs that surround it. This episode features interviews with a variety of locals with Irish ties, as well as visits with musicians and artists in our own gritty, charming, dirty old town. I'm Stephen Collins, and this is 78644. Luke Langshin is a, a friend of mine, but also new to uh, Lockhart. Within what? When did you move out? Uh, 2019 in April. Okay, right before the pandemic. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but you had a good place out there to hang out and, and do it. That's true, right? And we had a new kid short in May 2022, so uh, we were kind of locked up with a new baby anyway for a little while. You're a songwriter, and you've formed a new group, right? Well, uh, sort of. Um, so it's my, me and my brother and uh, my two friends, Matt and Matthew, Matthew Payne, Matt Latour, that are uh, on the album primarily. Uh, but we've, we've been playing music since college, uh, but, but in sort of various, you know, various arrangements and, and situations. Um, this is the first real proper studio album that we did together, I'd say. I think we finished uh, tracking about a little over a year ago. And so then uh, Matt, our drummer, has been doing the the mixing. He did a fantastic job. So this album, all the songs were originally just acoustic guitar songs that I wrote that were that work as songs just with the guitar and vocals. And I started playing them with the with with my, with my friends, um, and we sort of worked out orchestration and more of a sort of a full rock um, arrangement for them with drums and lead guitar and, and some piano and strings. Um, and uh, you know, just kind of took it from there. We sort of we just played it for a while until we felt pretty comfortable playing them live, and then decided to sit down and 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 get them all laid down in um, in, in a studio. I've been playing music since eighth grade, I suppose, when my folks got me my first electric guitar, and my brother and I were learning Metallica songs. So how I got started, I went to college and started playing more folk on acoustic. I learned a lot of John Prine, Towns Van Zant kind of stuff. You know, try to wound the ladies and all that. Um, and then, yeah, but then I ended up going to, I went to grad school for physics and studied theoretical physics for a while and got a PhD and did a, a postdoc in quantum computing and ended up leaving academia eventually. So my, you know, my day job is now I'm a patent agent. I write patents. Um, but you know, this music's always just been a passion of mine that I like to get a break from the more analytic scientific kind of stuff that I do to work on music and, and art too. I, um, I painted the album cover for, for the albums I like to do. Um, oil pastel paintings also so a little outlet and and I hear some of like in your songs there's traces of some of the science kind of blending with the with more of a spiritual ethereal type of thing is that do you find yourself is that happening or is that just yeah no definitely yeah right? it's tricky right it's tricky to work physics language into a song without it being kind of cringy <laughs> but it's certainly something that I, I like to do when I can um, yeah one of the songs that I talk about 
um, hexagonal tiers, sort of referencing the six-fold symmetry of of uh, snow crystals. Um, yeah, so yeah, I try to I try to work it in when I can in a way that's you know somewhat tasteful. I, I certainly don't I don't really pride myself on being much of a poet, um, but every now and again I feel like I have my moments where I get a line in there in a song that you know I feel pretty good about. It's definitely a uh, a perspective which is unique because you know that you have the knowledge, and so when you can see those parallels, that's that's unique. I feel like the way to do it is just you know you can't be too over the top about it. You want to beat people over the head with a bunch of technical language in a song. I mean, you can if that's your thing, but um, try to just sneak it in here and there around the edges where it where it seems like it works. I think, you know, it's interesting. I've always been fascinated by what happens when you step out of the emotional realm as well and, and work within a scientific method to, to do something. I think there's something interesting happens. Oh, sure, yeah. Certainly, I, I like to kind of dabble in, in polyrhythmic type of stuff and um one of the songs on the album freedom has this sort of this weird like cross cross relationship between there's a, a like a ninefold uh phrase like a, a phrase that takes nine beats to 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 come around and that's over a four four background and so it takes a full however you know however many measures uh, before that finally like loops back around to getting in, in sync again and it gives it kind of a neat spacey feel where you get sort of disoriented and that was something that kind of just worked out the math ahead of time where I was like, oh, that'd be cool to like, to, you know, to write it like that so that it's kind of confusing because it seems like it's off because you have two separate rhythms at once. But um, but then eventually it all comes back together at the end. What's the writing process for you? So, so usually I start with guitar. I start with the guitar lick. And I, I like to put melodic lines in the acoustic guitar uh, parts. And that just gives me sort of a bass to sort of to spring, a springboard to, to base the, the vocals off of. So so often a lot of my songs, the vocals will kind of either follow or at least play around the with some of the melodies that are going in the guitar line. And so that gives me kind of a starting point. Uh, lyrically, on a lot of the songs, what I found to be works for me is if um, if I have a particularly vivid dream that I remember, this Red Blue Gold is an example of that, um, I'll just write down what happened in the dream and make it rhyme, and then I have my lyrics, which is... Nice, easy way to get around not, you know, being very confident in your in your, your poetry writing. <laughs> um, but there's a contemplative thing that happens in your songs, at least on this batch I've heard from the new record. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a, you know, a, a armchair philosopher. I like to, you know, think about sort of spiritual matters and the nature of consciousness and all that. Um, and I, I weave, yeah, weave that type of thing into into the lyrics. I often kind of go back and forth. So on the one hand, you know, sometimes when I have a writer's block, if I can just come up with some words that like have evoke cool imagery and, and rhyme and sound well together, I'll just put that in even if it doesn't particularly make any sense. But then at some point during that process, maybe an idea will come to me and I'll throw in something that is a little more meaningful or analytic. Um, it reminds me of Nick Drake and some of those writers from that era where there was a lot of contemplation with a folk style, but in a mystical kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My influences are certainly, yeah, I mean, yeah, Nick Drake's great. I, I've, um, I have a little bit of classical guitar training background. I took, just took some classes back in college. And so I mean, I sort of worked some of that into my guitar style and then, yeah, then folk. And also there's a little bit of a metal backbone in there if you listen for it, which has always been, you know, close, close and dear to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> the Viking. <laughs> right. Viking rock. Um, 
You've got a show coming up too, right? Yeah, yeah, at, uh, at Wild Bunch Brewing Company in Red Rock, which is just, just 15 minutes outside of town, sort of between here and Bastrop. Uh, Yarly, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, Lilliamoan. I'm probably not saying that right. He's uh, He built the place from the ground up. It's this awesome brewery out there, and it's, it's their five-year um, anniversary of opening the brewery. It's on March 11th. I believe there is there's a cover. I think five or five or ten dollars. I forget. Oh, sorry, I'll get these details. Um, and uh, yeah, so my my brother's flying in for it, and he has a separate album that he's finishing up with the same other two guys, Matt and Matthew. Um, and so we're both we're doing sort of a double feature. It's funny because we're two different bands. His is Storms in the Hill Country. I'm Rain with a with a E R E E N, but it's the same four band members in both. We're just in one case. My brother Jens is singing and playing piano, and I'm playing bass. Then for my set, he's playing bass, and I'm playing guitar and singing. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> so it's sort of like we're like double headlining, but no, that's great. Yeah, and you've know, so you guys knew the same team of people. Well, yeah, we all we were all friends back in college. There, um, yeah, the other two guys were both friends of Jens's. Matthew was his roommate, and Matt they met um, back in the college days in Austin. Can you talk a little bit about Burning Suns, the the song? Uh, Burning Suns is the title track of the new album, which Rain is the band. That one, I wrote that lick that, that, that just repeats the whole song. There's one guitar part that's four measures that just repeats on loop for the whole the whole song. Pretty straightforward guitar line, but it's it's disorienting rhythmically because it just it alternates where the downbeat happens. So it's if you listen to it, like if first the accents are on the upbeats and then the accents are on the downbeats, and it, it gives it this kind of disorienting feel to it. Anyway, so I just wrote this this line, and I was have, having a bit of writer's block with the words, so I sent it to Matthew, our guitarist, who's a, a brilliant singer and songwriter in his own right. He goes by uh, The River Has Many Voices. Um, anyway, I punted it to him, and he wrote the, the lyrics for it, actually. Uh, but, you know, he knows I love physics, so he worked in some sort of physics-related themes. So the, you know, the lyrics are about, you know, it has some, some poetic verses just sort of discussing various aspects of living and, and, and suffering and growing and hoping and things. Um, and, then the chorus just reflects on, it, it progresses, it starts with, um, remember that the heart is made from burning suns and the flesh is made from burning suns and every, all of this is made from burning suns. Of course, referring to you know, all elements in the universe that are larger than hydrogen come from, from burning suns and subsequent cycles of their, of their, their solar cycles. So it's a you know, very interesting physics point. Keep me dreaming And keep me waking And keep me hoping And keep me broken Remember this before you come The heart is made from burning suns Remember this before you come The heart is made from burning suns
palms cut with lifelines Psalms sung like lullabies When the moon brings the waves in Make friends with the ravens Remember this before you come The flesh is made from burning suns Remember this before you come the flesh is made from burning suns Remember this before you come All this is made from burning suns Remember this before you come this is made from burning suns Carmel Z is the headmaster of Lockhart Montessori School. She's from Dublin, Ireland, and has lived in Lockhart for a good while. She uh, stopped by the studio to talk about a local tradition that they do at the school that honors St. Patrick's Day, and to discuss the differences between the holiday in Ireland versus the U.S. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about St. Patrick's and the, and, the, and the parade, the holiday that happens in Ireland. So in Ireland, it generally rains on St. Patrick's Day, so everybody... In the olden days, when I was growing up, would head to Mass and then after Mass head into Dublin City or the biggest city near where you live to take part in the parade or watch the parade. Lots of local businesses, uh, schools, dancing schools, and we'd always have traveling bands from the States would come over in their fancy uniforms and we'd all be jealous of their sequence. Generally, on St. Patrick's Day, the pubs were closed, so it was a family day, unlike now, where it tends to be more of a party. In the States, I'm not too sure, but definitely growing up in the 70s and 80s, everybody was home since the pubs were closed, and it was a holy day of obligation. Everybody had to go to Mass, or your soul would be damned. <laughs> that's, that's the Irish way. <laughs> that is the Irish happy way. <laughs> <laughs> At the school, you, you guys do your own little tradition, a little parade there, because the holiday, is it a folklore story of the snakes, that kind of thing? I mean, I kind of know a little bit of it, but I'd like to hear it from you. So it is a folklore-type story. The snakes represent evil in the Catholic religion. Uh, generally, the devil is portrayed as a snake in a lot of the stories. So when St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland, it actually represents him driving evil out of Ireland. Um, so we didn't want to 
we wanted to incorporate the parade into our school tradition, being such an important holiday for myself. Um, we don't overemphasize the snakes being evil. We go with the more mythological story of just the snakes. But yes, that is what he's supposed to have done, was drive the snakes out of Ireland. But there were never any snakes in Ireland. When we opened the school and we only had, you know, we only had a few students and we decided to have a parade the first year, we invited the parents along and I went to a fabric shop and bought green, white and orange fabric. Um, my sewing skills are not great, but I did manage to sew together three lengths of fabric, green, white and orange, and we used a cardboard box and the children made a snake head. Um, and we attached the fabric to the back end of the box and we invited the parents over at lunchtime that day and the children got underneath the fabric, almost like a Chinese dragon, and we picked a child's name out of a hat and they got to be St. Patrick. And we had a very small parade where the children were under the snake. St. Patrick symbolically drove the snake down Westwood Road, or down our school driveway towards Westwood Road. And we had a bagpiper from Kreitz's Barbecue came out and he played the bagpipes for us as we drove our snake away. John Mutchler of the band The Golden Roses stopped by the studio to discuss his latest recordings and also a show that he has on Old Pal on St. Patrick's Day. Let's talk a little bit about how you got started. Uh, you know, have you always been a songwriter or has it been something that's kind of, because you do it full time now. And so was it something that was the goal or is it just stumbled into it? What's the history on that? Well, I've been playing music since I was very young, 13, 14 years old, um, playing in different rock bands, punk bands. Um, secretly, when I was about 19 years old, I discovered Hank Williams, Johnny Cash. Um, I grew up in a family that had some bluegrass roots, so I'd always known about Bill Monroe, Flat and Scruggs. Um, anyway, I, f I found myself, uh, you know, getting into that kind of thing. And um, once I figured out that people were playing this type of music still, in Austin, uh, I made my way from Washington, D.C. to Texas, and uh, I came with the intent of playing music like this. Um, and uh, I realized very quickly when I got here that I had a lot of studying to do first. So I watched for about six, seven years. Um, I was very fortunate to actually rent my first house in Austin next to Dale Watson. And uh, I would be sitting in the driveway while they were loading the bus and Chris or Mike from his band would come over and say, hey, man, what are you doing today? I'd say, I don't know. I was probably going to drink beer in the driveway, you know? And they'd say, well, we're playing with Ray Price today. You want to come with? Said, sure, of course, you know? So I spent, uh, you know, three, four nights a week watching those guys, you know, going to all the, the haunts, Green, Broken Spoke, Continental Club, Jenny's, and just studying until a friend of mine um, who was playing bass with Jesse Dayton at the time encouraged me to come over his house and play him some songs. And I'm never going to forget, he told me, he said, uh, Hoss, you ain't much of a singer, but you can write a pretty good song. Let's see what we can do. And that's how the Golden Roses started. That's and that, was about, that was about seven years ago. 
I was so into the music. And actually what was happening was I was working at a place called the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. And I came into work one day and I saw Hank Williams 3 on the marquee. And I asked my manager there, who's a total music nerd, I said, who the hell is that? And he goes, well, that's Hank Williams' grandson. And uh, he plays a bunch of Hank Williams songs and then plays some metal and punk songs. And I thought, well, okay, well, I'm off that day. So I went to the gig and that was my first introduction to the fact that people were still playing fiddles and steel guitar. Um, and then, so I, of course, went right out and bought a CD. And at the end of one of those Hank 3 CDs, there's this fake radio part where the guy goes, you're listening to Farron Young, Webb Pierce, Dale Watson, and Wayne the Train Hancock. And, you know, through my years of listening to Eddie Stubbs and WAMU 88.5, uh, I knew who Farron Young and Webb Pierce was, but I didn't know who Dale Watson Wayne the Train Hancock was. So I went immediately to find the CDs and I got them and was blown away. And what did they have in common? They were both playing and living in Austin, Texas at the time. So so you followed them, followed them down to find a place. That's cool. Yeah, the first, I'm never going to forget the first trip I, I came here uh, to Austin. That first five-day trip I saw uh, Dale Watson, Wayne Hancock, James Hand, and the derailers all in one week. And I couldn't believe that every single night, multiple different places, you could see this music that I'd been secretly studying for years. And uh, I was hooked. So I just kept continually coming back until I eventually made the decision to move. It all sounds very cold and calculated, but I really did. I, I studied mostly how to be a performer and how to work an audience. And that's by watching all these different, these different people. I was going out three, four nights a week. And then, and then I, 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 you know, discovered the even earlier Austin stuff, you know, your Jerry Jeff Walkers, your Gary P. Nunn's, your Michael Martin Murphy, all this really like the super rich history of a form of country music that fascinated me even more because the fact that I am essentially covered in tattoos, a punk rock kid, you know, I'm not going to be any sort of clean, polished version of anything that you hear coming out of a place like Nashville um, or even L.A. And so to see the kind of I hate to use this term, but to see the kind of outlaw, like progressive country version of things that these guys were doing, I was even more inspired. So I got even more. And that's kind of what got me into, into songwriting, really, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, because I, I wasn't really much of a songwriter per se. I would always write tunes, but I would never play them for anybody. And they were strictly um, functional. It was to get it out of my head. It was all personal experience or things I'd seen people I know going through. Um, but I really started to cultivate that when I started listening to say like Jerry Jeff Walker. Um, Cause you were, you were in a punk band before. You know? I was, yeah. But, but you it, always had a secret love of this, right? Correct. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I was in a band with a, a good friend who's, since passed, but I remember one day we were in the van heading somewhere and he looked he looked over at me, he said, you know, you ever thought about doing a Hank Williams song? And I was like, you listen to Hank Williams too? And he was like, yeah, man. And so we kind of had that bond, you know, that's not something you really talked about back then. I mean, now I think it's probably kind of cool, um, but yeah, it's. And this is in Washington, D.C., right? The East Washington, D.C. area? Correct, yeah, I was born in Maryland. Um, literally spitting distance from Washington, D.C., and then throughout my whole life, I went back and forth. And so before I moved to Texas, my adult life, uh, I spent in Washington, D.C., working and playing in, in bands and running around, running the streets, getting into trouble. Have you stumbled onto a style that you think is yours? It's the way that you write? 
Wow, that's that's a good question. I don't know. I, I'm I'm very very fortunate, and this isn't my term. This is a term that I heard Ellis Bullard use, and when he used it, it really it really resonated with me. I surround myself with musical assassins. I have a band of uh, a Berkeley steel guitar player, a fantastic fiddle player and vocalist, bass and drums, and uh, the Troy and Heather both sing a hundred times better than I. So. I write the song and what I hear in my head is not what ends up coming out because I bring it to the band and then we all put it together. Um, and so I think in that respect, yeah, I think the Golden Roses now has a style. I'm, you know, I'm very excited to put this next record out whenever we can. And because um, I think it really is the culmination of the five of us coming together and creating what is the Golden Roses. We've done one EP and two full length records and two standalone singles. So we've been pretty busy. We we work really hard. We uh, Everything is self-financed. I'm the booker, I'm the manager, I'm the scheduler, I'm the songwriter, um, the van driver. Um, and so basically we've taken all these money from gigs that we play and we, we put the records out ourselves. This one I'm gonna try to be a little different. I'm gonna try to find someone else to put it out. I've recorded it, I'm gonna master it, and then we'll go from there. What has changed, do you think, from the from the first two records to now, I hesitate to say this, but I have a little bit more confidence. Uh, the first record to me is unlistenable. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not good. I just say from you know coming from my own mouth, um, I was learning. I didn't know what I was doing, and I was emulating. You know, it's you know it's what is it? John Lennon said, you know, originality comes from your inability to emulate your heroes, right? So I mean, that's basically what I was doing. The second record was really shaping up to be something I was very excited to do. Um, unfortunately, right before we went in the studio to record the record, our steel guitar player at the time quit and moved on. And we'd gone in the studio and we recorded some songs. And uh, Zach from Mike and the Moon Pies was very gracious and sat in and, and played the steel parts for us. And then uh, COVID hit. So uh, some time went by. We finally were able to get back in and Again, he he played the steel on the record, and it's fantastic. It just sounds so beautiful. It's one of my favorite parts of the record, um, besides the cover photo, of course, which was shot in front of the Baker Theater, by the way. Um, but it was just hard to release during COVID, especially because we didn't really have any label support or anything behind us. So this specific record, uh, right after we put that record out, I met Tony Rancone, which is our steel guitar player. and he fit right in. I mean, he sat right down at the first rehearsal, made a really bad joke, and I knew he was the guy. And he's, like I said, he's a Berkeley guy. He's a jazz guitar player, and that really translates very well into his steel guitar playing. And so attitude-wise and playing-wise uh, really fit. And so these songs were written with all five of us, and we've tested them. We've played them on stages, you know, all of, you know, New Mexico, Colorado, all over Texas. And um, they just came together very quick. When we did in the studio, I mean, it was like one or two takes, you know, maybe some light overdubs and we were good to go. Without going too much into the business aspect of being a musician, um, again, I didn't coin this term, but we're going through what, it, what has been referred to as a country music gold rush these days. There's big acts. You got your Sturgill Simpsons, Tyler Childers, uh, Coulter Wall, Charlie Crockett. These guys are really big. They're selling out these really large places. And so it's a great opportunity 
for smaller bands to catch opening slots for these, these guys to get attention. But the problem is now, is now that there's management companies and booking agents behind these larger acts, the people that they're pulling to do those support slots are very are much more focused. The people that they want to lift up. Also too, I don't like playing by myself. And so having a, a major act take out a full five-piece honky-tonk band that can be very, very high energy live is not an easy sell on my part. The idea is to regroup. Our van broke down the last tour we did in Snyder, Texas. And uh, so we need a new van. And I need to get some sort of, you know, uh, bigger presence on Spotify and such so I can book a gig, uh, I'm sorry, a tour that isn't going to lose me thousands of dollars. Because like I said, the last two we did, we had a lot of fun, but they were very hard to bring people. It's hard to go to Amarillo, Texas when you've never been there before. And as a matter of fact, uh, the single we had just put out, Jaded Lover, which is a Jerry, Je Jerry Jeff Walker cover, was number one on the radio station in Amarillo. So I thought, okay, we're going to go play the Golden Light. It's going to be great. And there was like five people there. Yeah, it's a different era. Yeah, I know what you mean. And it's such a hit or miss without a promoter to work the tour. I'm actively looking for a manager. That's the next step for the Golden Roses, yeah. is to find someone who can manage the band better than I can um, and who can get us into different different avenues of being able to promote ourselves. Because again, you know, we're playing a lot and we're recording and we're doing all those things, but you know, I'm still going to be 45 in two weeks and I still need to pay my mortgage. So I still also have to drive to Austin four or five days a week to work, sometimes a second job. So all that stuff and then being the manager of the Golden Roses is tough. And I've done it for the last seven years, but it's time for me to let someone else do it. So if anybody's interested, give me a call. I, I swore I was never going to leave Austin, Texas. I was um, in, and still in love with the city, the town. Um, but we were living in an apartment and we couldn't afford anything else. And she had mentioned that she wanted to move out here. So the deal was, was that we would come out here and we would rent a house. I said, I'll rent a house for a year and see how we like it. And we fell in love with it. And, you know, that was, you know, I think we're pretty old school now. I think we've been here six years. Um, and, uh, we met a lot of people. We met you, we met your wife, you know, um, a bunch of other folks in town. And I just realized that there was creatives here. And there was art and there was music and there was culture. There wasn't really any food, but that's fine. We're getting there. Um, and so, you know, that and the fact that there's a toll road. So if I need to get to Austin in 35 minutes, I can. That's what sold me. And, uh, and we were able to, to buy a house. So three years ago, we bought a house for the both of us. You know, we both grew up poor and this is our first home that we've owned and it's ours. And now she has the business here in town and it's, it couldn't be any better. I, I don't see myself going anywhere else anytime soon. Well, the Irish Blessing, which I thought was very appropriate for this episode, uh, and it actually is going to be on the new album. Um, we were about to do a run and I had everybody's money from the Whitehorse gig the previous week. And so I'd given everybody their, it was, you know, like 350, 400 bucks. And my bass player, who's a very interesting guy um, and likes to carry a weapon with him wherever he goes, uh, <laughs> he looked at the money and, and Tony looked at him and said, what are, you, what are you worried about, Troy? And he goes, I don't know if I feel good about carrying this much money out on the road with me. And he goes, well, you've got, you've, you've got a, a pistol on you. And he goes, yeah. And he looks up and he goes, 
70 rounds ought to get us out of any sticky situation. <laughs> and we thought it was so absurd. I'm not a gun guy. Let me just put that out there. I'm not a gun guy. I think 70 rounds is a lot. And so we told this story to uh, Tony's wife, Angie, uh, and her and her father had come to see us. We were playing in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Mercury Lounge, and they couldn't they couldn't stop laughing about it. And so she came up to me. She goes, you know, being out on the road and like getting yourself out of a sticky situations, like it's kind of like an Irish blessing. And I was, I didn't know what that was. I faked like I knew what it was. So then I, of course I Googled it and I saw that phrase, you know, let may the road rise up to meet you and luck be at your back. And so I wrote a song. Leaving town while leaving's good, we gotta be on our way. Big city or a small town, either way we're gonna play Through the pouring rains and the hurricanes and maybe a bit of snow We don't stop till the hammer drops cause we're always on the go May the road rise up to meet you and luck be at your back Traffic going through Houston, well, it might not be so bad. Keep the coffee strong as it drives along, and I hope we don't break down. Say an Irish blessing before we leave town. Now, me and Sean, we've seen the world from all kinds of automobiles. A tour bus, pickup truck, and a death box on four wheels. His life is rough, but it's good enough for this hero soul of mine. We keep between them ditches so we make it home alive. Oh, let's make it home alive. May the road rise up to meet you and luck be at your back. Traffic going through Lockhart, well, you know it ain't so bad. Keep the coffee strong as it drives along, and I pray we don't break down. Say an Irish blessing before we leave town. Everyone in the van, wheels are up at nine. We got seven little old hours till we're on that Tulsa time We may not find any trouble, we might find some confrontations Seventy rounds ought to get us out of any sticky situation May the road rise up to meet you and luck be at your back Traffic going through Dallas, well, you know it's always bad. Keep the coffee strong as it drives along, and I hope we don't break down. Say an Irish blessing before we leave town. Just say an Irish blessing before we leave this town. And now a word from our sponsor.
This year, I've had three people come in and order the hat for their son who graduated from high school. And that's what he wanted. It's not what the parents, but they remember walking in with dad and grandpa getting their hat shaped by Manny and now bringing them back and getting clean and rebuilt for, with us. And now they want the third generation, Joella and us to continue. Um, and that's what they want. They don't want to, they don't want a new pair of Nikes. They don't want a pair of new boots. Some get the boots after they get that. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I'm starting to see more and more ladies get hats too because they realize what was involved accommodating to fit. And they pick out a new hat band and they, people think they got a new hat. Come on down to Texas Hatters where we top the best. Sean Michael Chavez, a painter residing in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and a New Mexican native, has been in town showcasing eight new paintings, and uh, it was a real pleasure to speak with him as he stopped by the studio to discuss his work and what he is showing here at the Commerce Gallery. I just want to get started a little bit and talk a bit about how you got started as a painter. I think you, you got started young, and then just like most interesting stories, there was a crazy path that, that you took there to get back to it. Is that, is that right? Yeah, definitely. It's it's surprising that you bring that up right away in that manner. But um, yeah, I've always really considered myself an artist, um, just something that I've been drawn to for as long as I can remember. And certainly uh, in my early 20s, I was in pursuit of that as a career. I guess the reality of the rarity of being able to really have that be uh, sustainable uh, kind of came crashing down on me, I suppose, to a certain extent. To go back a little bit, I guess, I consider um, my painting career as having two lives. And that was kind of the um, my really young, ambitious self, realizing that how hard and how difficult it was. And ultimately, that ended up in me um, enrolling in uh, graphic arts school. And so that sustained me creatively for, um, you know, 20 years, I think, almost, in a creative sense of working with color and shape and design and two-dimensional surfaces and trying to, um, you know, create designs and such, but always knowing that at the end of that, um, or that at some point that the brush would, um, you know, become the priority again, that's the beginning of my second painting career, (laughs) which has been a lot more successful than the first, I think, because there's a lot more experience and wisdom that backs it up this time. (laughs) <laughs> when you were working in, in graphic design, were you doing print work? Um, I was lucky enough to um, be on the cusp of the shift in the printing industry where everything went direct plate and such. So I actually started off um, as a stripper. <laughs> and so I was actually stripping film and stuff like that in the beginning. And um, lucky enough too to work for, a, uh, I guess, my first graphic art job before I was even graduated was for a printing company that had everything from a huge web press to, um, you know, single sheet feeders, one color presses and everything. So even to this day, I have in one of my studios, I have a a clamshell offset or not a a press, basically letter press. And it's from like 1890 or something like that. So it's um, treadle powered and uh, printing is definitely... um, strong in my background and an interest for me. And so that's kind of where the graphic art, the core 
I guess, of my knowledge, but it extends into digital as well. For better or worse, um, I have a broad range of interests. Then you moved to Santa Fe, right? No, I still live in Albuquerque. Oh, still, um, okay. Yeah, I go up to Santa Fe quite a bit. Um, it's less than an hour away. Um, Santa Fe is great, uh, but Albuquerque just has a few more resources, I think, for us. Um, Santa Fe has a tendency to kind of shut down at you know a certain time of the day or certain parts of the season, and Albuquerque is kind of always going. My parents are there. Um, honestly, yeah, we actually have two properties in Albuquerque, and so it's just a little bit more convenient for us um, and just a few more resources than Santa Fe. All the Santa Fe is beautiful and has all of its um, reasons to stick around there too. But we get the best of both worlds by being in the area, let's say. When I was looking at the the latest work, uh, the Vicero series, I'm seeing a little bit of your design background in there. Sure. And it's cool. It's like, um, it's really striking to see the the hybrid of sort of tradition and then graphic tradition in oh. there. It almost makes it like, it, there's elements underneath the surface to me when I'm looking at it that look like a graphic kind of uh-huh. novel kind yeah. of thing for each cell you know what i mean really powerful sure. framing uh, am i is that off base I, I don't know i mean i'm curious no, that seems accurate and um i have had, heard other people describe that as well and it really isn't for me to um articulate it in that manner i really do enjoy hearing other people sort of put um themselves i suppose into it a little bit and and, and describe it in that manner but i have heard that quite a bit i don't know if i've articulated this before but i do see some of that um like uh it's probably like a 30s or 40s sort of French poster influence, like Truce Lautrec or something like that. And in fact, one of the paintings in the gallery, and by no means is it intentional, but there is a really famous image by Truce Lautrec of a gentleman in a hat. Um, and I think he has a scarf on and everything, actually, that um, one of the paintings, I, I'm curious now, I'm going to have to pull that image up and put them side by side, but I do think that one of the paintings at Commerce Gallery right now is an echo of that um, in, in some respects, uh, by no means intentional. Like I said, I'm going to have to, um, at this point, pull them both up and put them side by side, because I bet, I, I, yeah, there's an echo there for sure. But I, lo- uh, I love that, yeah, the, how cool. And then um, the, four, the 20s to the 40s bullfight poster type of sure, vibe yeah. too, it's really, um, which I've always loved of the romance of those posters, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a lot of action, been a lot of, well, it's sort of a graphic, almost cinematic sure. look. Yeah. Um, but the Toulouse-Lautrec thing is really, that's, I'm going to check that out when I go to the paintings. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, can. I enjoy um, sort of mixing like 2D and 3D too in the paintings. Um, I think that's part of what you mean by the graphic. And then also talking about that poster art a little bit where that's very two-dimensional. Um, but working, like the backgrounds have a tendency to be a little bit abstract and flat. Um, and part of that also is me intentionally trying to create a distinctive style because I think that that's one of the challenges as an artist um, is to stand out in some capacity from the crowd or from what other people are doing. And so that is a a stylistic decision that I've made that I think helps distinguish me a little bit, is the mix of those styles, a little bit of a flat mixed with 3D and a little bit of even perhaps hint of abstraction even in it my background um for you know a couple decades was um, marketing and design and so 
as the time for me to begin painting seriously again approached, I did my research, so to speak, and sitting on such an opportunity such as Santa Fe being a center of art globally, you know, um, it's well known and there's so many opportunities and resources there for an artist. I spent some time doing my research before I figured out what it was I was going to paint. And it was important for me to find something that related to me specifically, being a New Mexican um, and from New Mexico and knowing the area and that being part of my heritage, I had to find something that I could personally relate to. And so being Chavez um, and recalling and seeing photographs of relatives before me carrying badges and sidearms and such, uh, I felt like that the vaquero was a subject that was underserved and um, something that I could directly relate to and continue to learn not only about myself, but about the history of the West. I mean, really, the Vaquero paintings are in some ways, some respects, probably what I'm sort of known for, actually, in some ways. And so it would be, I would find it hard to leave that behind at this point. Um, and I do think that it is something that uh, the Western art market needs to be reminded of. And so I, I do want to continue doing that subject. I think that the history of the West is interesting in the sense that um, it's so mythological and really it's been built upon um, manifest destiny, actually, and um, our rights to be here on this land. And that um, it's the mythology of the West and the cowboy that was a convenient um, story for America, early America to tell. And it kind of left some of the true history behind in the telling of the new myth the catalyst and the source of what we know as the silhouette of the cowboy is the vaquero. Yeah, we have the Billy the Kid and the and the gunfighter myth and the and the John Western, Wayne, right? John yeah, Wayne, yeah. yeah. But this is uh, you you you're missing something if you don't notice where the source. Yeah, that. absolutely. And I feel like um, you know it's not that it's completely void in Western art, um, but there is um, sort of a vacuum that I that I feel like I'm able to fill on that subject. And cause you would be surprised, uh, you know, how often I go to um, some museum openings and shows and such. And I, I can see people's light, the light bulb go on inside their head and say, oh, that's where the cowboy came from, you know, <laughs> he, the, the, from Mexico. Um, and that's so fascinating and interesting to me too, that, you know, well-established collectors and artists and such don't realize that, you know, the source of the cowboy. And where he comes from, um, and really, and it and it breaks down too as far as some of the way that the, the cowboy conducts themselves, you know, with honor and dignity and truth and, and honesty, and that that the source of that is the vaquero, like a, a strong work ethic. At Commerce Gallery, uh, there's eight paintings hanging up right now. Um, was, the show actually has been a couple years in the works in the sense that um, Tamara contacted me and. For various reasons, things didn't work out until um, two years down the road after our initial contact. And so I'm really excited to be here um, in Lockhart, hanging paintings to Commerce Gallery, um, getting a chance to visit both this town and Austin, and honestly, too, in Santa Fe. Um, the people of Texas have been so generous in terms of their interest in my work. I'm excited to sort of 
express my gratitude by being here and bringing paintings to Texas. <laughs> and so, yeah, we've got eight paintings here at the gallery, um, kind of a wide spectrum of subject matter in the sense that we've got some landscapes, I suppose, with, and then um, some other paintings that are more figurative focused broad range of sizes. I think we've got sizes from 16 inches by 20 inches up to 60 inches by 120 inches. Um, that last one being a triptych actually. So that's the dimension of the three paintings put together. But that as a single painting is, I think probably one of the, my largest paintings I've ever done. Um, as they say, everything is bigger in Texas. So I thought it might be a good idea to to go ahead and, and paint at that scale for uh, this 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 place. <laughs> and so you did you you had Texas in mind when you were doing some of the paintings. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been fortunate enough that um, I have a hard time keeping up with demand, I suppose. And so every painting I make at this point is intentional as far as its destination is concerned and such. But yeah, this set of eight paintings was um, reserved and created for for Texas. And, uh, and the first time that they're shown is is here, right? First time I've shown in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's we're honored to have you. I'm I'm honored, and thank you for having me. <laughs> you can see the full exhibit of Sean Michael Chavez's work at the Commerce Gallery, and now. It's that time. Hey there, that's right. It's Neil Diamond here with your celebrity eye in the sky. When you look up above, it looks like a lot of people are headed over to the place where they call it the Love on the Rocks, that new bar over there. Love on the Rocks, but you gotta, you gotta know that if you're coming up down on 183, it's going to be a cherry, cherry, so very. So you got to be careful there, because it looks like they're taking in orders at the steakhouse. Oh, yeah, that's right. Red, red wine. Made me feel so fine. Love being up here. Love being up here in the chopper doing a celebrity. Celebrity eye in the sky for the 78644. Oh, don't forget. If you're coming on in 183, you know you're coming into America. Damn straight you are. You know once you get here to Lockhart, you get on those side roads and they're gonna be forever in blue jeans. Hmm. Love on the rocks, ain't no big surprise. Just a reminder that our lineup is featured on our Instagram page daily and our story is called The Roundup. If you want to know what's going on in town tonight, please check out 78644podcast on Instagram. It's also the place to go and find out where our next episode is out. We also want to remind people about our 78644 local program. It's a $5 or more a month subscription that all proceeds go directly to musicians. February's tip of $85 went to Kay Maison, who played on our second episode. Subscribers will be getting an email about our next event at Old Pal on March 17th, the Golden Roses Show, St. Patrick's Day. To sign up, go to 78644podcast.com and click on subscribe. Sign in for a recurring donation of $5 or more. 
When you sign up, we will send you a password-protected link to all playlists of the music featured on 78644, and you are supporting local music. Wednesday, March 8th, at Old Pal, Chicken Fried Steak Night with Parker Chapin Residency, 7 to 9 p.m. The Pearl will be having Chris Lancaster from 7 to 10 p.m. Best Little Wine will be having Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Thursday, March 9th at Old Pal, Mike Wayne will be playing from 7 to 9 p.m. The El Ray will have karaoke from 9 to 1 a.m. Friday, March 10th, Old Pal will have Charlie Murphy from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. What, 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 you gonna smack me back? I'm Rick James, he's Charlie Murphy. The Pearl will have Grant Ewing from 8 to 10 p.m. Load Off Fannies will have Two Bins and a Bear from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. The El Ray will have Hank Williams IV. It's a $12 cover. Sunday, March 11th, Old Pal will be having the Dustin Welch Residency from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Load Off Fannies will have Jams with Chinny from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Sunday, March 12th, The Pearl will have the Sunday Matinee with W.C. Clark from 3 to 5 p.m. Wednesday, March 15th, Stony Gable will be playing from 7 to 9 p.m. Best Little Wine will have Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner at 6.30 to 9. Thursday, March 16th, Old Pal will have Tommy Luke from 7 to 9 p.m. The Pearl will have Open Mic, which is hosted by the Michael James Chio. El Ray will have karaoke from 9 to 1 a.m. Friday, March 17th, Happy St. Patrick's Day. At Old Pal, the Gold Roses will play from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. The Pearl will have Grady Keenan Band from 8.30 to 10.30 p.m. Saturday, March 18th, Old Pal will have Roy Heinrich from 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Commerce Hall will have Chaz Bissett along with Dave Beck's Tejano Weekend. That's $10 at the door. Goes to the musicians in the band. Doors open at 7. The show's at 8. Sunday, March 19th. The Pearl will have W.C. Clark from 3 to 5 p.m. El Ray will have the Blues Sunday from 2 to 5 p.m. That's a free admission. Wednesday, March 22nd. The Pearl will have Chris Lancaster from 7 to 9 p.m. On Thursday, March 23rd, Old Pal will have Beth Lee from 7 to 9 p.m. And the El Ray will have karaoke from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. And that's it for 78644 News. Kay Gorley is a Lockhart resident who has a Texas-Irish connection, dual citizenship as a United States citizen and as an Irish citizen. She stopped by to uh, talk about her years as being married to Frank Murray, who uh, is a well-known manager in Irish music uh, for managing Thin Lizzy and the Pogues, the Frames, and many other acts. So she brought two good cans of proper Guinness, and we're going to start our interview with that, right? The black stuff. Yeah. The re- oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. Salancha. <laughs> Salancha. Salancha. <laughs> that's the, is that the Gaelic, right? Yeah, that's the Gaelic for to Salancha. Bottoms up. That's uh-huh. Texan. I want to get started a little bit about how you met Frank Murray. We were talking a little bit earlier about how you met Frank at a time where he wasn't on the road and he wasn't doing all these um, things that were keeping him so busy. He was in Austin. Is that is that right? No, I met him. <clears throat> so Frank was uh, in Dublin, and when I met him, and because I had this Irish connection, um, St. Patrick's Day always falls during South by Southwest. 
And so what a lot of people are unaware of is that when these artists come over for South by Southwest, whether they're from Japan or Spain or Ireland or England, they actually come over as a delegation. And their country actually pays for them to come over or pays for a portion of that. And so I would always be in touch with the Irish artists that were coming to Austin because I would be, I would be able to get them gigs outside of their showcases, which was so important for the artists coming over because if you're only doing two showcases, it's important that you be able to really get out there and spread your music. And there would be maybe 12 acts that would come over and I would pick maybe six acts to work with or maybe three. And then I would get them gigs outside of the showcases that they were doing. They were non-paying gigs because they obviously cannot accept money. So we would do things like buy them their food and drink and I would find them places to stay. And there's a delegation uh, in Ireland. It's called uh, First Contact Ireland. I have to clarify that. Um, Angela in Dublin, she works very, very hard um, with this group and in the music industry in Dublin to bring over these acts and to make this happen and just on the ground there promoting artists. And, and so you were over in Dublin working for that? So what happened is, is that on that particular year, I had flown to England to meet some friends in England. And um, typically bands start contacting me in January, um, sometimes even in December, um, because they, they've already been picked by South By. And so they would start contacting me. And this one particular band really perked my interest. I just happened to be in England and Stephen Murphy messaged me and he said, well, why don't you hop on a plane and come over to Dublin? And I said, sure, why not? You know, I, I mean, I have friends there and I've been going there forever. I went to Dublin and um, I met up with Stephen Murphy and Frank Murray was sitting there with him. And we were actually, I met him at the Central Hotel at the Library Bar, which is very important because it's a, a really lovely place in Dublin. And most of the bands that I meet, I just meet the band members. I very rarely meet a manager. So we're sitting at the library bar and I look at this man sitting across from me. He's very exquisite and just, you know, his mannerisms. And I mean, it was definitely love at first sight. And I also thought, oh, I'm meeting a manager. And at first it was kind of, you know, we're holding our cards close to us. You know, I don't want to give up everything I know, you know, in Austin on the ground. He wasn't getting very far with me. And finally, Frank, Frank could get frustrated very quick and very fast. And finally, Frank just said, look, I managed Thin Lizzy. I managed the Pogues. So I kind of stopped there for a moment and I was like, mm, okay. So he got me at Thin Lizzy. And then, uh, and then he knew I was a single mother of a son named Seamus Keogh. Uh, at the time, Seamus was six years old. He knew that I had ties in Ireland and he also knew of prior South by Southwest and my resume and what I'd been doing. So at that point, we started to communicate. And then he came over in February, uh, Flog and Molly, they were doing a tour. And Stephen Murphy, his artist, was uh, he was the opening act. As soon as he got off the plane, we went to the Long Branch Inn, which is now Nickel City, Travis's spot. And we had a shot of tequila and we were Velcro until the day he died. He spent one summer here in Austin. Uh, he had friends, you know, uh, Joe Ely, Sharon, Sharon Ely. He was also very good friends with Lewis Black. 
He had partnered with Lewis early on when Lewis did the film festival for South by Southwest. And Frank had brought a film festival from London called the Maverick Film Festival to South by Southwest early on. So he had, you know, deep roots in Austin with Lewis and Joey Lee and uh, Joe King Carrasco and other artists as well. So we decided at that point that we were going to start doing events in Austin during South by, which we did. And they were fun. They were great. Um, There was the Austin Flaw that we did in Flaw in Irish means festival. And that was a great event that we did one year. Um, and then one year we did um, an event called Dancing Dancing with the Moon. And at that event, we had Bob Geldof, and that was kind of a comical uh, run of events for that uh, particular show. But um, we had a great time. And then I eventually moved to Ireland with my son. And then my son had his, uh, he was a dual citizen. Um, so the time that I spent over in Ireland, um, I obtained my Irish citizenship. So I have both American and Irish citizenship. Frank came from a family uh, in from South Dublin in an area called Crumlin, in that area, and um, so did Philip Linet. And Philip Linet's mother had Philip in London, but then she took Philip back to Dublin to be raised by Philip's grandparents. And so, you know, Philip was a black man in Ireland, and during those days, you didn't really see that. Um, but Philip was very, very talented and at an early age. This would have been probably 1965-ish. Um, in Dublin, you know, they had, you know, like the big band sounds and they weren't really doing like the rock and roll just yet. And so Philip had met up with um, Robert Downing, or not Robert, but sorry, Brian Downing, sorry, the drummer. And um, he met Frank because they were um, friends and um, and then they formed some. Uh, they formed a group called the Black Eagles. Um, and then from the Black Eagles, there was another group. Um, I could go through the list of guitarists um, that they had. And then at eighteen, they moved uh, to London, and that's when they started to form Thin Lizzy. And was he working as a road manager or as just general manager? No, he was working as a road manager. He also um, toured with, um, at a very young, I think he was 18 or 19, he toured with uh, the original Almond Brothers. Um, you know, he came to America and he did a tour. Um, and he also, um, he worked in a factory where he pressed records as well, vinyl. So Frank was always doing, he was always moving and shaking. He was always doing what he could to make money um, but he was always um, he was always in the arts, you know, whether it was film, music, um, poetry, uh, plays, whatever. He was always involved with arts. He especially loved um, singer songwriters. You know, he was with Thin Lizzy. And then from Thin Lizzy, you know, he toured all around the world. I have great stories, tour stories. Um, they wrote the cowboy song in Dallas, Texas when they were rehearsing to go on tour with Queen. And then the boys are back in town, are about them coming back to Dublin after being on tour. So there was, at that time, there was a lot of touring going on. And then there was just, you know, a breakdown in the band, things shifted in the band. And I think at that point, probably him and Philip, that relationship started to have some, they started to have some problems, and then he started working with other bands in London. At that time, in the 80s, 
there started to be, you know, the punk scene. So he he met up with people like Joe Strummer, Mick Jones. So he started to work with those people along with Shane McGowan and the Pogues. Frank would hire Irish musicians, Terry Woods. He was a guitar player. Uh, Philip Chevron, they were Irish. And um, he would add them to the band and brought them over from Dublin. And also with the Pogues, Frank would do um, things like he and uh, Shane would read poetry, Irish literature. Shane McGowan is a prolific reader. Um, he's an, an incredible artist. A lot of people don't know that about Shane McGowan. And so Shane took a lot of those works and books and poems that he read and created their songs. And it was, you know, they were at the right place at the right time. It was, you know, punk rock, but with that kind of Irish shanty, you know, you know, no wonder why Johnny Depp is wanted to be a pirate. Johnny, Johnny and Shane are really good friends. I can imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're really good friends. Uh, the, the thing I love about the Pogues and, and a lot of Irish music is is the literary aspect of it. It's got that a bit of history and a bit of color of the um, of the place in it. So. What I like about the Pogues is it reminds me, in a in a certain way, of an Ernest Hemingway type of approach. Where like they put you in there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I that was that was that was exactly what Frank wanted. You know, Frank was a creator in that way, and so you know, Frank would get an idea and he would go for that idea. Um, you know, the Pogues never really in every band. There's always a leader in the band. Uh, with the Pogues, there was never really one leader. You know, Frank was giving them a lot of direction. I know James Fernie, who was the drummer, um, had a lot of say, too, as well. You know, you had Spider, Stacy. You know, it was a very, I don't know, democratic kind of voting power the way that band worked. So, and they would tour, and sometimes Shane wouldn't show up. Um, there was a tour that they did with Bob Dylan, and Shane didn't show up. He just decided he wasn't going to show up. So, you know, it was there was always there was always that struggle with Frank to make sure Shane was where he needed to be. So moving into the recent past of working with Glenn Hansard and people like that, kind of re like you said, the singer songwriter mm -hmm. aspect of Irish music. I think didn't he do Sinead O'Connor too? Um, he no, Sinead O'Connor's manager was Faulkner, which I love dearly. He's he's a wonderful man, and also BP BP Fallon had a lot to do with uh, Sinead. He he was her publicist, um, but you know Frank knew Sinead very well, but he never managed Sinead. Um, but with Glenn Hansard, I believe Glenn was a street musician, a busker, and and he came across Glenn, and he also knew John Carney, who did Once, who was the drummer for Glenn Hansard. Um, and then the frames happened, and that's how um, Glenn Hansard and the frames happened. And then he was their manager for many years. You know, I'm just a girl from Austin, Texas. You know, I had a very normal life. Both my parents were educators. Uh, my dad was a high school football coach. My mother was an elementary school librarian, which there's a school in Austin, a library named after her. And so I grew up in a very kind of normal household um, in Northwest Hills in the 1980s. But Austin was a very small town. And um, my grandfather was from Manchester, England. And so I had I I had a travel bug and a you know wanderlust. 
And so at 18, uh, I just really wanted to get out of Austin. Although my parents were very conservative and they wanted me to, you know, go to college or, you know, become a secretary. And, you know, my mother slotted me for this nine to five type of job. And I'm just, I have probably way too much ADHD to do something like that, to sit in a room from nine to five, uh, you know, 40 hours a week. Um, so I started traveling at a very young age. I just had this wanderlust of the world and wanted more. When I met Frank, I just fell in love with the man. I didn't necessarily fall in love with the music. I was already in love with music. I was already in love with the arts. I just saw this incredible, wonderful, very handsome man, and I fell in love with him. And then we moved to Dublin, and we just had a very normal family life. And, you know, when I'm sitting next to Mick Jones on one side of me and I'm sitting next to Glenn Hansard on the other side of me, you know, they're just people at the end of the day. They are musicians, but they're people. And I, it was just something that, you know, I was in it, but in t I really didn't know I was in it because I, it was a family. We were a family unit and it was just our lives. In Dublin, you know, when people see famous uh, artists or musicians or actors walking along the street, they leave them alone. Um, it's not a starstruck type of place. And I think also Frank knew that about me. I'm not a starstruck type of person. And he knew that I would be able to handle those situations. And I was actually in Rome recovering from a year of chemotherapy and radiation. And um, BP Fallon called me and he's like, get your ass to Dublin. And I was like, BP, I'm, I'm in Rome. I'm convalescing. I'm getting through a year of going through chemo and radiation at MD Anderson, you know, my hair was maybe a quarter inch around my head. And he's like, no, you need to come to Shane's 60th birthday party. Come fly back and be my date. And so at the last moment, I booked a ticket for Dublin and I went to Shane's 60th birthday party, which was crazy because there was Bono and there was um, uh, Nick Cave was there. Johnny Depp was there. Sinead O'Connor was there and all these musicians. And afterwards in the backstage area, um, I was with my friend Romy and Sh Sinead O'Connor was there. And, I'll, you know, how some people like Nick Cave could barely even move around the room because people would surround him. And, and I just find that sort of behavior bizarre. You know, I just leave, they're just people just like us, except for their artists or musicians. Yeah, I, it's good to hear that in Ireland, people just let people be and, and and be a part of the community. Well, it's not uncommon that in Ireland, especially during Christmas time, um, if you're in a pub, and Bono always does um, this thing on Christmas Eve on uh, Grafton Street. It's the main high street in Dublin where he comes out and sings songs. Glenn Hansard does the same thing. But it's not uncommon that you would be in a pub and there could have, at the time, you know, Ronnie Drew when he was alive or, you know, a Dubliner or a Chieftain or it could have been uh, Glenn Hansard or, you know, Bono. And there's still that sense of where you're going around the pub and you're storytelling. And, you know, it goes from person to person to person to tell that story. So even though Bono may be sitting next to, you know, Patrick O'Connell, you know, Patrick's story is just as important as Bono's story. And so the Irish have very, very rich history and how they twist and turn those stories and how you go down the road with them when they tell that story is is really a beautiful thing. And one last thing. Can we discuss kind of how, how you came to Lockhart? Yeah. So um, there's an Irish connection there. Um, first, I have to talk about Jennifer Roebuck. She was a very good friend of mine. Um, she had a boot store here. 
Um, and I, I've known Gabe Moray forever. We all went to high school together in Austin. So I would come to visit Jennifer and Gabe. But I also had some really good friends, um, the Ryans, Jerry and Patty Ryan, that own Heritage Boot in, on South Congress. And so they own the house where the Caroline is today, which is Donna and Tamara's house. And so when they were selling their house, they hired me as their agent. So I was able to spend a lot of time here when I was selling that property. Also, they owned where the Commerce Gallery is. That that um, Jerry and Patty had a boot store there. And so they had rehabbed that space and they sold that space to Don and Tamara for the art gallery. Um, and so while I was here, I was able to get to know some of the people here. And I have a house in central Austin. And I just was feeling like it was time for a move. I came upon the um, Glosserman estate and I fell in love with that house. I purchased that house and then I purchased the adjacent property, which has interesting history that was once owned by a Harlem Globetrotter, uh, Marcus Haynes. Um, and I'm just excited to be here in, in Lockhart at this time. Um, all the creative people that I've met, the new people that are moving in, and some of the older guard in Lockhart too have been very kind and very, very generous. It, it's so nice to just walk down the street and see people you know and run into them and say, hey, how you doing? There's a real sense of um, people caring about the community here and giving back. With me purchasing the Glosserman estate, it was important to tell the story of that house. It was built by Fred Adams. I hired a historian, and I've spent about $20,000 doing the history on that, and we are in the process of putting it on the national registry, the state registry, um, and the local registry. And I got the idea from living in um, Ireland and England. You know, there are big castles and old estates where they open them up to the public X amount of days of the year. And that's what I would like to do with this property is have it open to the public X amount of days of the year and also have it open to school children. You know, there's a library in that house for teachers to come and, you know, do story time with the kids. The track team runs through the, the grounds I've given money to the um, to the football club here. Sport is very important to me as my father was a football coach. So it's important to share that house with the community and have it open for free for visitors and tourists to come certain days out of the year and let people see the history of Lockhart and tell that history. Because I believe that there's a lot of folklore here, oh, right yeah, here definitely. in Caldwell County in Lockhart, and, I, and it needs to be told. And now, in honor of Frank Murray and Shane McGowan, Dustin Welsh will read Seamus Haney's Slow Gin. Slow Gin by Seamus Heaney. The clear weather of juniper darkened into winter. She fed gin to slows and sealed the glass container. When I unscrewed it, I smelled the disturbed, tart stillness of a bush rising through the pantry. When I poured it, it had a cutting edge and flamed like Betelgeuse. I drank to you in smoke-mirrored blue-black slows, bitter and dependable. Our show is brought to you by Texas Hatters, The Little Alamo Airbnb, El Rey Bar and Nightclub, Wendy R. Books and Gifts, Birdie House, Maverick Horseback Riding, and our in-kind sponsors, Bevy's Fine Wine and Spirits, Good Things Grocery, Willigan's Island, Courthouse Nights, Printing Solutions, and the Gaslight Baker Theater. 
Our show is produced by Kate Collins, recorded at Troubadour Image and Sound, the Troubadour Studio in Lockhart, Texas. In-studio performances by Luke Lankishen, John Mutchler, Dustin Welsh and the Lockhart Community Players, Slow Gin, written by Seamus Haney and read by Dustin Welsh. Other music by myself, Stephen Collins, Gary Newcomb, and the Irish Players. Our show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Amazon, Radio Public, and everywhere else where podcasts are streamed. Thanks for listening. I bet my love by the gasworks wall. Dream to dream by the old canal. I kissed my girl by the fact. Yeah.